Chapter One of Three Years in the Federal Cavalry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Limebrook of Lake Elsinore, California. Three Years in the Federal Cavalry by Willard Glazier. Preface. I have for a long time intended the publication of this book, for I thought that such a work would not only be found interesting to the public, but would do justice to the brave men with whom it was my fortune to be associated during the dark hours of the rebellion. To serve them is and ever will be my greatest pleasure. The remarkable features and events of our late cavalry movements in Virginia and elsewhere, visible to me during the campaigns of the Army of the Potomac, were noted daily in my journal. From that diary the story of our raids, expeditions, and fights is compiled. My descriptions of battles and skirmishes, in some cases, may seem too brief and unsatisfactory to which I can only say that scores of engagements, which to the participants appear to be of vast importance, have very little general interest. On the other hand, however, it is to be regretted that where our gallant horsemen have done the most brilliant things, it has been impossible for me, in many instances, to secure reliable and detailed accounts with which to do them full justice. Willard Glazier New York, October 8, 1870 Chapter 1 The War for the Union, Contest Begun 1861, Enthusiasm of the North Washington Threatened Bull Run and Its Lessons General Scott and the Cavalry Enlistment under Captain Buell Harris Light Cavalry, Leaving Troy, New York, Captain A. N. Dufier, Drilling and Fencing at Scarsdale, New York, Bound for the Seat of War, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, Camp Oregon. The 11th of April, 1861, revealed the real intention of the Southern people in their dastardly assault upon Fort Sumter. The thunder of rebel cannon shook the air not only around Charleston, but sent its thrilling vibrations to the remotest sections of the country, and was the precursor of a storm whose wrath no one anticipated. This shock of arms was like a fire alarm in our great cities, and the North arose in its might with a grand unanimity which the South did not expect. The spirit and principle of rebellion were so uncaused and unprovoked that scarcely could anyone be found at home or abroad to justify them. President Lincoln thereupon issued a call for 75,000 men to uphold and vindicate the authority of the government, and to prove, if possible, that secession was not only a heresy in doctrine, but an impracticability in the American Republic. The response to this call was much more general than the most sanguine had any reason to look for. 
the enthusiasm of the people was quite unbounded. Individuals encouraged individuals. Families aroused families. Communities vied with communities, and states strove with states. Who could be the first and do the most was the noble contention which everywhere prevailed. All political party lines seemed to be obliterated. Under this renovating and inspiring spirit, the work of raising the nucleus of the grandest army that ever swept a continent went bravely on. Regiments were rapidly organized, and as rapidly as possible sent forward to the seat of government, and so vast was the number that presented themselves for the country's defense, that the original call was soon more than filled, and the authorities found themselves unable to accept many organizations which were eager to press into the fray. Meanwhile, the great leaders of the rebellion were marshalling the hordes of treason, and assembling them on the plains of Manassas, with the undoubted intention of moving upon the national capital. This point determined the principal theatre of the opening contest, and around it on every side, and particularly southward, was to be the Acaldema of America, the dreadful field of blood. The first great impulse of the authorities was in the direction of self-defense, and what could be more natural and proper? And Washington was fortified and garrisoned. This done, it was believed that the accumulating forces of the Union, which had become thoroughly equipped and somewhat disciplined, ought to advance into the revolted territory, scatter the defiant hosts of the enemy, and put a speedy end to the slaveholders' rebellion. But the hesitation and indecision which prevailed in our military circles were becoming oppressive and unendurable, and hence the cry of On to Richmond was heard from the border states to the St. Lawrence, precipitating the first general engagement of the war. Our defeat at Bull Run was a totally unexpected disaster, which for a time it was feared would chill the enthusiasm and greatly weaken the energy of the North. But though the South was much strengthened and emboldened by their victory, our defeat had its own curative elements. It taught us that the enemy was determined and powerful, and that to overcome him the ranks of the Union Army must be filled with something besides three months men, or men on any very limited term of enlistment. Other lessons were also gained. Our men had formed some acquaintance with the citizens and the country. They had learned the importance of a more thorough discipline and organization. And those who had gone forth as to a picnic or a holiday sat down to count the cost of enduring hardness as good soldiers. The nation discovered that this struggle for life was desperate and even dubious, and it was thoroughly aroused. Under the military regime of General Winfield Scott, the cavalry arm of the service had been almost entirely overlooked. His previous campaigns in Mexico, which consisted mainly of the investments of walled cities and of assaults on fortresses, had not been favorable to extensive cavalry operations, and he was not disposed at so advanced an age in life materially to change his tactics of war. 
what few regiments of cavalry we had in the regular army were mostly broken up into small detachments for the purpose of ranging our western frontiers, while a few squads were patrolling between the outposts of our new army, carrying messages from camp to camp, and pompously escorting the commanding generals in their grand reviews and parades. But the Black Horse Cavalry of Virginia at Bull Run, unmatched by any similar force on our side, had demonstrated the efficiency and importance of this branch of the service, and our authorities began to change their views. The sentiment of the people at large seemed to turn in the same channel, and a peculiar enthusiasm in this direction was perceptible everywhere. It was as though the spirit of the old knight errantry had suddenly fallen upon us. I was in Troy, New York, when the sad intelligence of the reverse to our arms at Bull Run was received. This was followed quickly by another call for volunteers, and I decided without hesitation to enter the army. In accordance with my resolve, I enlisted as a private soldier at Troy on the 6th day of August, 1861, in a company raised by Captain Clarence Buell for the cavalry service. To encounter the chivalrous Black Horse Cavalry of Bull Run fame, it was proposed to raise a force in the North, and as Senator Ira Harris of New York was giving this organization his patronage and influence, a brigade was formed whose banner should bear his name. Originally, the regiment to which my company was assigned was intended for the regular army, and was for some time known as the 7th United States Cavalry but the government having decided to have but six regiments of regular cavalry, and as New York had contributed the majority of the men to the organization, we were denominated the 2nd Regiment of New York Cavalry, Harris Light. This regiment was organized by J. Mansfield Davies of New York as Colonel, assisted by Judson Kilpatrick of New Jersey as Lieutenant Colonel. The men were mostly from the states of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Vermont, Pennsylvania, and Indiana. August 13. Today, Captain Buell's company of Trojans was summoned together for the purpose of leaving for the South. Under a severe drenching rain, we were drawn up in line fronting the residence of General John E. Wool, when the old veteran delivered a most heroic address, which led us quite to forget the pelting rain and prepared us for our departure. The boys then found a very pleasant shelter on board the Vanderbilt, bound for New York City. The day following, all the New York State men rendezvoused at 648 Broadway, and were mustered into the service of the United States by Lieutenant Colonel D.B. Sackett of the regular army. At 4 o'clock p.m., we were ordered aboard a train of cars and told that our destination was Camp Howe, near Scarsdale, 24 miles north of the city, between the Harlem and East Rivers. We reached the place just in time to pitch our tents for the night, an operation which was not only new and strange, but performed in anything but a workmanlike manner. We had everything to learn, and this was our first lesson in soldiering. Captain A. N. Dufier of Company A, a Frenchman, 
and graduate of the military school of Saint-Cyr, France, is in command of the camp, and is to be the superintendent of our discipline and drill. He is undoubtedly well qualified for this position. August 16. This morning we commenced the inevitable drill on foot, as we are still without horses. We find this exercise very severe, and yet, in view of its great importance, we accept it with a good degree of relish. Our drill master is thorough and rigidly strict, after the fashion of the French schools. We cannot avoid learning under his tuition. In the afternoon we were set to policing camp. This comprises the cleaning of one of the roughest farms in the country of stone, and as a remuneration to the owners for the use of this most unsightly of God's forsaken ground, we are compelled to build stone fences, a very unpleasant introduction to military life, and an occupation which by no means accords with our ideas of a soldier's duties. But our hands toil with a protest in our hearts and with a certain resolve that this kind of fencing must not long continue. After a week spent in drill and the stonewall enterprise, we were all surprised one morning with an order to fall in line to receive a Napoleonic harangue from Captain Dufier. So many and even loud had been our protests, and so glaringly manifest our rebellious spirit on the subject of fortifying a farm in the state of New York, that the captain undoubtedly feared that he might not be very zealously supported by us in his future movements, and so, like Napoleon, on assuming command of the army of Italy, he sought to test the devotion of his men. After amusing us a while in his broken English, and arousing us by his touching appeals to our patriotism and honor, at length he shouted, Now as many of you are ready to follow me to the cannon's mouth, take a one step to the front. This dernier result to pride was perfectly successful, and the whole line took the desired step. We were then ordered to be ready to leave camp at eleven o'clock that morning, which was on the 20th of August, assured that Washington, D.C. was our destination. Our ranks were quickly broken, and all due preparation made for our departure. After marching to Scarsdale, we took cars and were soon landed in the metropolis, through the principal streets of which our command passed to the Jersey City Ferry. Without much delay, we reached Philadelphia in the evening, where we were bountifully supplied with rations by her proverbially generous and patriotic people. True to the instinct of brotherly love, the citizens are making arrangements such as would indicate that millions of Union soldiers might be fed at their tables. Here we spent the night. The next morning at 6.30 we were on our way southward. A brief halt was made in Baltimore, whose streets still seemed to be speaking of the blood of the brave Massachusetts men. And as we march along, we can but recall the poet's prophecy. And the eagle, never dying, still is trying, still is trying, with its wings upon the map to hide a city with its gore. But the name is there forever, and it shall be hidden never, 
while the awful brand of murder points the avenger to its shore. While the blood of peaceful brothers God's dread vengeance doth implore, thou art doomed, O Baltimore. At four o'clock p.m. we beheld the dome of the nation's capital, and after landing we were marched to the eastern part of the city and pitched tents near Camp Oregon, named thus in honor of Colonel Edward D. Baker, who represented the territory in the Senate of the United States, previous to his acceptance of a military commission, and who is now in command of the famous California Regiment, which occupies this camp. End of chapter 1